Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Ebooks in Critical Theory. In this episode, I'll be talking about academic diary or why higher education still matters with Professor Les Back. Welcome to Ebooks in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Les Back from Goldsmiths about his new book, Academic Diary or Why Higher Education Still Matters, which is. Welcome to Ebooks in Critical Theory. In this episode, I'll be talking about academic diary or why higher education still matters, with Professor Les Back. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Les Back from Goldsmiths about his new book, Academic Diary, or Why Higher Education Still Matters, which is published by the Goldsmiths Press. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, this is a really interesting book for a whole variety of different reasons. Um, and actually, I think... If you could sort of tell the story of where it came from, mm. we might get a sense of kind of who you are and what you do a bit as well. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, this is a book which was, I thought, was never going to see the light of day. So the idea for it goes back quite a long way. I, In the days of the AUT, that tells you how far it goes back. So before the UCU became our union, uh, the union for university teachers was the... Um, the AUT. And the AUT had a magazine called, imaginatively titled Outlook, AUT Look. And the press officer for the AUT was a journalist that I had met actually through the course of doing uh, research and, and, and helped him with a couple of stories anyway. Not to go into too much of the detail of that, but he joined the magazine. He wanted to bring a little bit more life to it and make it a bit more interesting to read. And he, he recruited a bunch of people to be columnists, one of them which one of whom was Laurie Taylor. Right. Uh, and he asked me, and I was incredibly flattered by this idea. It's the grandeur of being a columnist. Wow, what a thing, <laughs> you know. So I said, yeah, I'll have a go at that. And then was pretty soon humbled by the discipline of having to produce readable copy Routinely, something academics don't have to do. We write to an occasion, often not an occasion which has a tight deadline. You know, we're terrible about deadlines, actually. So that discipline of of writing columns routinely and having you know something to say was actually something I struggled with initially, and I sort of stumbled on this method of doing it. And the method was simply this. I would take something small that had happened in the rhythm of the working day here at Goldsmiths usually or, at, or you know, in associated places on campus somewhere and then try and link it to a big issue. So I did this for a while and I really enjoyed it. I loved the brevity, you know, the sort of being able to make a big point in a very short space of words and I love the idea that it was it circulated so quickly. So every AUT member read it. I got tremendous feedback. I enjoyed the license to be irreverent as well as serious. Let's talk about the deep 
meanings of what we do, as well as the light-hearted absurdities, which in a way captures the two poles of academic life for me. Anyway, so after a period of doing it, I suddenly thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book like this about the sort of craft of thinking, of teaching, all the aspects of a, an intellectual vocation? I wrote a book proposal, took it to loads of academic publishers, Almost everyone I spoke to in publishing said, what a great idea, I love it. And then there would be a sad pause and they'd say, but I'm sorry it doesn't fit within the formats in which we have to work. I can't sell it to my editorial board. And that was a lesson to me. You know, people who work in publishing, almost to a person, are book lovers. But they have to operate within a structure that's actually quite confined. Anyway felt defeated. Then I met this wonderful woman called Kat Unicor, who now works here at Goldsmiths. I met her at her PhD viva. I was, her, I was one of her examiners. In the, and we, in, in fact, started talking about this book before her viva. She just reminded me of that recently. Anyway, after the viva, Pat, uh, Kat is also a very, very accomplished web designer. And she said, oh, I love this idea. Uh, why don't you just send me the pieces? So I sent her maybe two or three dozen pieces. Um, quite a lot of it had already been written. Maybe, maybe, well, actually, there's probably not as many as that. Maybe 10 or 12. But uh, she immediately could imagine it, and she sent me back a design for a website. So initially, the, the, some of these pieces were published as uh, part of a kind of online blog site called Academic Diary. That was published in 2011. It was incredibly popular. Uh, just before the book came out, I did some Google analytics, and, and 200,000 people had visited the site over that period, you know, over a period of four years. Anyway, time passed. I forgot all about it. And then when the Goldsmiths Press was starting to be planned, um, Sarah Kemba and Roger Burroughs actually approached me and said, would you consider doing something a book-length version, a finished version of the diary idea. And when I looked back to it, I realized that the blog had the sort of the germ of a book idea, but it wasn't a book. It wasn't quite a book. One of the interesting things about doing um, the process of writing and publishing this way is it made me very much alert to the difference between writing for blogs and writing a book-length narrative. Uh, and I said... Well, they, they also, it was quite a comical, Roger Burroughs said to me, so I remember it so he said, oh, you know, it might be much, might be much work, because the book is more or less there. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, I've got all these other things I need to do, and it won't be much work. So, yeah, of course I'll do it. And I always wanted it to be a book anyway. Of course, the, it involved much more uh, thought and actually a good deal more writing to actually turn this uh, idea into its book form, which is which has just been published, so that's the kind of potted history. Really. So it had an interesting, interesting journey. Both it, it revealed things about the nature of publishing. It revealed the nature of things about the changing nature of academic writing now. The the sort of oscillation between the online and the old, you know, the old book form. And I remember showing a, a, a colleague the early mock up of the diary when it was online. And she sort of said in a slightly mournful way, she said, well, the, you know, the thing about an online book is you can't really take it to bed, can you? And, of course, you can take your laptop to bed, and I'm sure many many of the listeners <laughs> indulge in that particular vice, but it's not quite the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a book that's full of these um, sort of really short kind of, I think, 
was your phrase, you know, read them with a cup of tea kind of length yeah. entries. Yeah. And yet it deals with, you know, some really kind of profound issues about um, the nature of uh, higher education, both in Britain, but also by implication of the bits uh, of the world today. So I wonder, one route in might be to kind of probe a bit why the diary structure mm. and what is it about kind of this idea about sort of living through academic time as you get the sense from the book um, of the way the academic year unfolds that allowed you to kind of tell this this bigger story? There's two two big things that you raise. Let's deal with the question of the calendar. I've always loved the idea and and the experience of academic work being kind of seasonal labour. Yep. Now, some people think that actually the seasonal dimensions of academic labour are being disrupted by the pressures that are being imposed on it. But I still think an academic vocation is a vocation in the kind of seasons, if you like, of the life of the mind. There are certain kind of things that happen at the beginning of the year. There are certain kind of things that happen at this time of the year that we're speaking in in May and June when the exams are sat you know I just invigilated an exam yesterday so I love that not just in terms of of it having a kind of uh, quality of work but also it's a kind of storyline for the academic vocation you know the academic vocation has a beginning middle and a kind of end and it re- and it repeats that recursive aspect so that was one reason why I was attracted to the diary form the other reason that the diary form seemed to me to be an appropriate one was because I wanted to try and tell a story about the university, about scholarship, about the value of thinking itself from the vantage point of what it means to do that every day. You know, a kind of story of the university, not from the macro you know, transformations of what's happening to the neoliberal university. There are plenty of accounts like that. But I wanted to, in a, in a way, make a case for why universities still matter from the kind of bottom up, from the, you know, from looking at your diary on any given day, what is it that you've got to do? One way of kind of illustrating that, uh, that sense of academic seasonal labour is one of the really early entries in the book, which is you writing to a new or kind of prospective student with a set of advice about almost kind of how to be within the institution. And uh, I think it was this published possibly in the Times Higher and the Guardian as a kind of you know short um, example from the book. Uh, and I think that's a really good way of kind of saying early on, uh, when we're still in the kind of September, October uh, time, there are these, I guess, kind of moments of uncertainty for students that you try and address directly through mm. the uh, that particular entry. So it'd be great to hear about that. Yeah. Well, this. I love the beginning of term, partly because it's it's a time of, of hope, of new beginnings, uh, lots of new things that are starting. And the reason why I wanted to start, well, it doesn't actually start there. It, the, the book starts with graduation, actually, which I think is the kind of New Year's Eve of the academic calendar. The end of one you know, cohort, if you like. And then usually, uh, less so at the moment, actually, because our graduations have come into the summer, but usually it's in, in the autumn, you know, the late summer, early, early you know, autumn period. Uh, but just a few weeks after is what we call now Welcome Week, which is always Freshers' Week in the old, in the old calendar. Uh, and there's always something about that. And just, you know, the conversations that you overhear, have that atmosphere of new beginnings. 
but a friend of mine asked me very pointedly a few years ago, so, well, you know, you've worked in university for a long time. His daughter was about to start at the University of Sheffield. She subsequently got her degree now. And he said to me, you know, one morning, he said, well, you know, well, what kind of advice would you give to his daughter, Hannah, actually, at the time? And it's kind of made me really think. It made me soft stop and think. And now I thought to myself, particularly in the midst of all the changes that are happening, all the pressures that bear down on students, which I think are unprecedented in this generation compared certainly to mine, and I think maybe the, the generations between, uh, it made me think really hard about that. And, and I suppose that letter was written not just as a kind of, you should do this if you want to succeed kind of way, but also reaching out across that divide, because I think that's very, very important to me. And, and in a way, one of the perils of, you know, tenured middle-aged folk and professors like me is that we lose connections with and a memory of, of what it actually means to encounter this world for the first time, what it means to be a student. And that sort of combination of anxiety and exhilaration that I think is is often the experience of students. What well, one of the things that you, you raise, I think, it's your first point in your letter to a new students: this idea of kind of listening but not being silent, yeah. um, and you know that kind of sense of kind of engaging uh, with the, with the institution. And this comes out in um, your criticism, uh, important and valid criticism actually, of things that students are expected to do in terms of responding to government agendas. Mm. So you use the example of uh, students not suspects and ideas about surveillance control, um, the racialised aspects of this uh, on campus. And I wonder if you could say a bit about what students not suspects kind of tells us about contemporary university life, particularly thinking through that kind of, you know, listen but don't be silent. Well, it's two things that you've brought together, actually. Well, the Students Not Suspects campaign was something I was very much involved with, but my involvement with it, and it wasn't just a goldsmith's, at the heart of that m- moment, if you like, was a challenge to the way in which the sort of micro power of border control moves into our most intimate scenes of life, not only in our private lives, but in our working lives. So the idea that, you know, we are keeping track of students. Now, the reason why I, I, feel, I feel that's so important is that it kind of touches at one of the key tensions within the contemporary university. On the one hand, you know, we're constantly be expected to achieve and proclaim our world-class braininess, you know. To have a world-class reputation is the thing for an academic to aspire to. Which which tells you something about the sort of global sensibilities of the university and the way it's talked about. Yet at the same, and, and increasingly, we're trying to recruit students from all over the globe. That's one of the things I've noticed in thirty years of being at Goldsmiths. How how that international cosmopolitan dimension of the university has changed. Yet at the very same time, when we're reaching out and connecting to the world at large. The experience of students moving across those national boundaries are increasingly uh, scrutinised under the kind of impetus of securitisation and the the atmosphere of, of, of what we might call anti-immigrant times. Those two things tied together. And why does that matter to me? Well, it matters to me politically as a general 
thing to be concerned about in the world. But, you know, I was doing a graduate school for three years here, and I would just see the havoc and the damage that that wreaked in individual lives. I mean, the entry about students, not suspects, starts at the beginning of term. You know, I used to have to go and welcome the 100-plus new PhD students that would be joining the college uh, any given year. I remember one Chinese student coming up to me with such an incredible sense of a violating sense of shame written on her face of what it meant to be treated like a criminal by the Home Office, to have her marriage questioned, you know, the accusation that her marriage was a marriage of convenience to get her husband, all this stuff, you know, and you think, well, that's happening at the larger political scale, but what does it mean in the life of a student who's coming, you know? sparing no expense to come to this corner of our capital, you know, one that I feel very committed to and and, uh, and proud of in lots of ways, actually, and to have that sort of experience. So that was why I wanted to write about that, um, because it seemed to me to capture something about the tensions and the conflicts within the university today. It's global reach at the same time way which the university is being prone to these kinds of regulation. One more thing uh, to think through in terms of the kind of student's experience, which which I thought is lovely. It kind of closes the um, the end of the first term or uh, the kind of the year uh, that's the first third of the book is this idea about a, a new year honour. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it's, it, it's a lovely entry because it, it kind of juxtaposes some of those broad themes about how the state organises itself and recognises yeah. things and, you know, the, the lineage and baggage of being, you know, awarded British Empire honours and this kind of stuff. Yeah. With actually, you know, the day-to-day life of helping out students. Mm-hmm. And so it'd be really kind of, uh, I think, quite nice actually to hear, you know, your own version of a new year new year honour. Well, I can show you one actually as well. I mean, it won't be very good on the radio. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> so... Where does this come from? Well, I've always had a very deep suspicion of the honours system. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a suspicion that isn't shared. But, and you know, I, I think it's utterly forgivable for, you know, musicians from the other side of the tracks or celebrities to be indulged and to take a, an honour from the Queen. Um, you know, the honours system is deeply tied to the legacy of empire, you know, Order of the British Empire. It's very much tied to, the, to, to that past. But there seems to be something, in my mind, mildly distasteful about academics and professors being awarded those uh, imperial baubles alongside, you know, high-ranking police officers and, you know, ministers, uh, civil servants and so on. And so I've always had a deep suspicion of that. I mean, I'm, also, I'm very mindful of those people who've, who've turned them down. Like Stuart Hall turned down an honour. So did Richard Hoggart, another one of my uh, idols uh, and uh, people I, uh, I admire who's written about in the book. Um, Alan Bennett did too, but he had a lovely phrase about it. He said, you know, he turned it down because he didn't think it was the right thing to do. But he disapproved of people who swanked about turning and swanking. I don't agree with swanking about it, he would say. So anyway, so there's that. that. Um, and I'm just mindful about those people who do take them, you know, in my own discipline and beyond it. Sometimes those people who also, you know, style themselves as radicals. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be uh, 
made cheap shots shots of people about that. But it made me focus on, on my mind and okay, well what is an honor? What is it does it mean to be honoured? And this the um entry at the end of, of the first semester that talks about that it was, was just a, an email I got from a student who had read one of my books and uh, it had helped him make sense of his own life in, in one way. Uh, it was a book that was set, set as a compulsory reading uh, during his degrees to studying um, in, in East Anglia um, at Suffolk. Uh, it helped him make sense of his own life, but it also had made him feel that he could be part of this community of thought. And I just thought, well, that's enough for me. That's enough for me. And so, you know, there's these small things that come back. They don't always come back. Sometimes they take their time. In fact, I wanted to show you this. This is my new year. Just for those people on the radio to explain it. This is my folder. It's a great big fat folder. I, I, I need you to corroborate how fat it is. Yeah, it's a huge folder with <laughs> soul, soul food written on it. With soul food written on it. It's full of emails like the one that's described in there. And, you know, I, I think someday that uh, when uh, life is less full I'll, and, and I want to take stock, I shall sit down with a cup of tea somewhere quiet and I'll read, read through these things, that I'll have, most of which I'll probably have forgotten. So that's where, I, that's where I think the true value of our vocation is to be found in those small moments when you realise that the things you try to do, the, facet, the, the curiosities that you try to cultivate, the, the things that people are passionate about, that you, you try to facilitate a space to think in relation to those things and beyond them, that, that's where the value It's It's funny you mentioned value because yes. w- one of the questions I was going to ask is quite directly the kind of what's the value in academic writing? Because mm. obviously that, you know, both runs right through the book, but there's also, uh, you know, specific uh, entry dedicated to kind of thinking through that yeah. if it's a problem or if it's a question. Or, yeah. So, yeah, what, what's the value in academic writing? Oh, it's a, I'm not sure if I, I settle on I think I allude to my answer to that, maybe because I haven't really thought it through. Well, you know, I can tell you the ways in which academic value is being measured and judged, you know, through the proliferation of, of metrics from citation to, you know, the value that are given to the submissions that we make to the Research Excellence Framework and the REF panel's judgments on what we do. That's an easy way, in a sense, to describe the hierarchies of value, and there are clear hierarchies of value. Whereas I think the value of what we do is much more elusive it's so hard to, to get a, a, a sensible um, measurement or weighing of that value. And, and I've come to realise that you only really get a sense of that by encountering people who have read or found something in that thing that you've written that they have taken on and made use of. Uh, and there's a few moments where that, sort of, where, where that kind of circle is complete, if you like. Uh, there was this one story of in the book about going to give a keynote lecture in you know, a very big occasion, which always you know raises certainly raised my blood pressure. Uh, and this um, young scholar waited behind. It was a curious thing. It was the first time I'd ever experienced people queuing up with books wanting to have them signed. I thought, really, you want me to do that? If you want me to do that, I'll do that. <laughs> it wasn't a very long queue. Um, 
anyway, at the end of the queue, she stayed behind it and waited. And she said, you know, I just want to thank you. And I said, well, you know, I, 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 it was really great to come. And I enjoyed the talk and this great discussion. She said, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I just want to thank you for something you'd written that I, I remembered, of course, but I hadn't thought about for a long time, that somehow this one essay that was in an edited book, she, that she'd read it at a moment when she, her nerve had been shaken, when she wasn't sure whether she could get through the project that she was doing, and that somehow reading that piece had helped her maintain her bearing and keep going with her work. And I just thought, well, that's why we do what we do. Well, that's why I do uh, uh, the kind of writing that I do. That, that's, that's enough. It raises or it brings to mind one of the things that you talk about later in the book, um, I think possibly getting towards the summer term, but yeah. this question about kind of, that's a story, I guess, of a kind of uh, a generosity that, you know, almost you weren't aware of. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of address this question about, oh, well, how do, how do academics be more generous? You know, in the, in the kind of the mode of, I suppose, justifiably kind of, you know, engaging with work and thus being critical, how do they still be generous? Mm. It, this gets to the heart of of the challenge that hangs over the university because everything in the way in which universities are changing institutionalizes selfishness. I mean, I, I read and admire very much the writing of Ros Gill and she talks about the way in which the changing nature of the measurement of value and, and so on creates a kind of toxic environment in the university. And I think she's right about that. And that can take on all kinds of form. It, you know, the, the pressure that people are under drives a lack of generosity to others and sometimes a really brutal form of criticism, which is a compensation for the pressure that we feel individually. That's her argument. It's not mine. I think, blimey, that is, there's something in that that seems very powerful in her insight. So... Um, In an environment where a lack of generosity is being licensed by the structures of value and all of the measurement and so on, you can't do scholarship. You can't really do learning in an environment where there's no generosity of spirit. How do we make sense of things? Well, we follow hunches, usually given to us as gifts from other people. We follow the guidance of our teachers, which often far exceed what they're being paid to do or being measured on. Do you know what I mean? So, and I have had some fairly up-close and unpleasant encounters with the fallout of that sort of institutionalised self-interest. And so it's, uh, and in writing this book, to be absolutely honest with you, I'm really surprised that there's been such a groundswell of positive reaction to it. I thought it might be a book that's kind of out of time and and sort of, and not, and not, and not resonate with people. Whereas I think it has resonated. It's been incredible, actually. And that's been a wonderful gift in of itself. Anyway, so then I sort of started to think in the face of this, you know, toxic, mean-spirited judgments uh, in the aftermath of the last uh, breath particularly or maybe a different way of coping in this kind of environment is to generate and foster a spirit of generosity 
generosity as a kind of survival strategy in the face of this in, of this kind of atmosphere, you know. And uh, and so that's been one of my slogans, if you like, in recent times. And and some people recognise it, some people smirk at it, other people think, well, you can carry on with that, but I'm going to carry on with what I'm doing, you know, which is my own self-interest. But you know, it comes back to, uh, and maybe it's a it's a life stage phenomenon too. You know, I I've come, you come to the point at the end of the day, I think, and you think, well, it's a bit like my file of soul food up there. Where is the trace of the, you know the curiosity, is the passion, the commitment to learning? Where where do we find it? Where is it manifest? It isn't manifest in the number of citations that are for my latest article, or the you know the grade that was given to my four ref publications in the in the last exercise. I don't think that's where it is. Those are the things that bear down on us. But I, I suppose in a way. What this project has been has been about it's been a conversation that's in the first instance about an individual reflection. Tipper Goetz has this wonderful formulation. He said, "You know, the thing about diaries is that they there can be this phenomenon of what he calls the diary disease, where it becomes self-referential, becomes confessional, and ultimately comes becomes narcissistic." And I never wanted that. I always wanted this uh, book or these, these pieces of writing to be written in the spirit of association with and others and collaboration with. That's why there's so many people, other people in it. So it's not a sort of lone singular voice, although, you know, they were written often in the cracks of the day, late at night, at the weekends, when I, you know, was trying to steal a little bit of time here and there um, of quiet reflection, you know. But I never wanted it to be an individual thing in that sense. So I hope that it it uh, it has that it has that sense. I mean, it's been really interesting as well. The things that have been inspired by, by I just was up in Preston last week, where a group of postgraduates wrote their own entries for an imaginary diary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that which was wonderful actually, and I learned a tremendous amount from from them, their perspective, their take on things, and and I know too that. Um, a, a univer- another university, the, uni- the union branch at another university is under pressure um, with regard to you know a push to measure and survey people. Uh, they're writing a collective diary of the impact of the crackdown on the part of senior management to to measure their performance. So you know it is a singular form, but it doesn't have to be uh, you know a narcissistic one. I see. What one example of that is uh, is your discussion of libraries, which comes yeah. again, you know, towards the end, and you, know, you kind of um, mount this, if not defence, but you know, you kind of make it clear why libraries still matter, um, and that is very much in that sense of shared spaces, you yeah. know, and, and kind of communal and communing activities. Mm. So yeah, it'd be great to hear um, that sense of, of why why libraries still matter. Oh well, yeah. I absolutely think that libraries matter. So it's not it's not hesitant. It's very brazen that the argument for libraries, for many different reasons. But that that was a late entry actually. That was one of the last ones that I wrote, partly because a student uh, ran this fantastic thing on World Book Night, which was the the idea of readings in the library. Now we've got twenty four hour access. 
to, 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 library, to, to the university library here to have readings through the night. Uh, and I, this, this student said, well, would you come and do a reading for us? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll definitely do that. The funny thing about that was, was that World Book Night actually falls on, on um, my wife and I's wedding anniversary. <laughs> so <laughs> I obviously had other commitments that night, so it was a great occasion. So we went out for, to celebrate our life, you know, God knows how many years we've been together now, a quarter of a century. Um, uh, and then someone... <laughs> Debbie, my partner, who's, you know, long-suffering in some of these matters, uh, goes home, goes to bed, and I said, I'm just going to nip out. <laughs> Jump on my bicycle, you know, cycle down from Catholic to New Cross. Um, two o'clock in the morning, of course, the event is running late, to do uh, my reading about the value of libraries, and particularly the quality of the library at night. So, yeah, it, that, that's where that entry came from. But it did make me think about the libraries that had mattered to me and what was it about them? You know, public libraries, particularly for those um, people who, you know, who didn't have a lot of books at home. That was the kind of home that I, I grew up in. Um, so the public library was a special place, a place of refuge, a place of wonder, actually, a, a place of quiet, actually. Less so now, but was then, certainly. And, the, you know, there's an account of that library, the first library. Richard Raymond Williams talks about the library as a very important, precious place. But when I started to look for it, I found all kinds of people talking about, you know, the value of libraries, um, you know, from Tony Morrison to Keith Richards. The public library as a space for contemplation, to imagine, to reimagine yourself. And also as places to... Be with others. Be be with others in thought. So that's where that particular idea came from, and I really enjoyed doing the reading. You know, which was uh, four o'clock in the morning or something like that. And there was this fantastic range of people. I like really established novelists, you know, experimental poetry, um, cultural theory being read aloud. You know, single microphone, a small sound system through the night. It was just fantastic. You know. Uh, but uh, and the, the absurdity of it, I just loved it. You know? And uh, I think twenty-four hour access is posing more and more interest. The librarian told me recently that a student was seen wandering around the library in the early hours of the morning, dressed in pajamas and a dressing gown. <laughs> Whether they'd set up home or, or just come from somewhere, <laughs> a place I, to live. Yeah, I, there's loads of ways uh, that I can kind of get into the conclusions. To the book. The book sort of ends by reflecting on the process of doing mm. academic diary, but also there's a really nice entry about um, the kind of seriality of, of your notebooks. It's yeah. a really interesting entry about Premier Levy's house. Yeah. But actually, what I really want to end with is uh, this wonderful question that you pose of like, what what do you actually do for a living? And mm. like, which yeah. which I think is you know again a, another little short entry, but um, kind of reflects quite quite interestingly in, in one of those questions that you can answer in a a metricized, clear way of, you know, yeah. I come in at this hour, I do, you know, I fill in the survey that says I do excellent research or teaching or admin. But, yeah, that sense of, like, what do you do for a living? Well, it, I've always felt very embarrassed to answering that question, largely because of the, you know, the life of the mind still, particularly in the context of, 
of of England being a sort of you know the association that you, you know, what do you do there? You read books and you think about it. it's a kind of mildly indecent thing to be getting paid to do. You know, uh, so I would often uh, try and avoid answering that. And, and my usual get out clause was or would be to say I'm a teacher, and you know. My uh, kids, as now they become young adults, would look and say, "That's not right." Or you know, so there would be suspicion. About it. Uh, there were one or two times when I got came really badly unstuck with that, particularly when I encountered a, a cab driver in Wolverhampton who just had a massive run in with his second his child's secondary school teacher. Said, oh, I really hate teachers, you know. <laughs> but so yeah, that that so that there is that part of you know how to describe it, um, but also. I suppose the larger, the bigger question is, well, you know, I still believe in the idea of education as particularly higher education as being a place where, you know, students can explore a sense of themselves, you know, to be more than that is truly transformative, you know, to be more than what you are already. That's what it was for me. And I see it so much that still that, that, the stakes, if you like, in the students that I listen to through their ups and downs and their exasperations and their trials. Uh, and, and I suppose the thing that I still feel very loyal to, and, and it's a loyalty that is a connection not to my own, you know, my own practice or the things that I've tried to do, but the people that gave me so much. And I do think that commitment to generosity is about not only what you do in the here and now, but also being kind of animated by the gestures and generosities and kindnesses that have been visited upon us and been given to us by our teachers and the people who have helped us in the past. I mean, I often say to, to students who say, oh, thank, thank you for this. I say, well, no, no, that. you just pass it on to the next person. That's how it works. That's the value of it. You receive and then you give. That's that's the nature of, of, of not the contract, but the nature of, of the task you know, at hand. Uh, so I still have that sort of belief, and it might be a naive belief in our neoliberal times, in you know the the tradition of workers ed, workers education, which is the idea of education as a collective hierarchy. I think that's what animated people like Stuart Hall, the great cultural theorists who celebrated in our brand new media building in the back. And I also think it's what animated people like Richard Hoggart, who was the warden of Goldsmiths in 1981 when I came here as a very green teenage student. You know, I think that's what they were animated by. Always, you know, I didn't know at the time the significance of Hoggart as a person, I have to say. You know, I saw him a lot. And you saw him a lot, but... And the reason, why did, it, why did I see him a lot? Well, because he was still teaching undergraduates while he was the warden of the college. What an extraordinary thing. It was only later that I really appreciated that when um, Dick Hedditch actually said, you know what, you should read Hoggart's memoir. There's three volumes of memoir. There's a chapter on Goldsmiths that is so extraordinarily uh, insightful. Uh, and, you know, his interpretation... Still means something. Still carries some of the quality of the sort of anarchy and wonder that this place is uh, today. So I think that's, that's, that's what I was listening to new books on critical theory. 
I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I was talking about Academic Diary, or Why Higher Education Still Matters, which was published by the Goldsmiths Press in 2016, and was written by Professor Lesbach from Goldsmiths, University of London. 